I have the, um, the privilege of kicking off our, our Christmas series of um, sermons. Um, things all themed to get us thinking about um, why this season is important or has become important over the, over the I guess you say, centuries, um, and how we can best make use of it. And how we might even share that with others and, and say, well, look, you know, how many Christmases has passed so far and, you know, you don't quite get it. And, you're, you know, people are at that point where, you know, all the commercialism of it all and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sick and tired of that. And then you've got a, a great way of being able to drop in and say, well, look, here's what I think it is. So I'm starting off with... Um, our first theme in the run-up, which is the miracle of the moment. The miracle of the moment. You know, so when we think of the birth of Christ, when we think of at the specific point in history where he decided to enter in, um, what are we to make of the moment? Did God just randomly show up um, and just decided, you know, like we can sometimes choose and say, well, you know, what, at what point in history should I make Jesus be born? And then, you know, just, all oh, right, okay, I'll put him in there. That's where I'll divide time. Well, the truth is, is that we need to start asking the question if we're going to explore this and unpack this and says, well, when is the right moment? When is the right moment to do anything? When I think of it, and... Uh, especially when it comes to my house and, and cooking chicken, my wife and I have very different ideas about when's the right moment to take it out of the oven. It's the truth. She wants it a bit more cooked. Being of the more Nigerian persuasion than I would where I want to have a little bit more um, tenderness in the meat. <laughs> I want, I want some, some juice in it. So we can differ, and so therefore it's, it can be very different to, to come to a consensus or an agreement on when the right moment is to do anything. I mean, it can be even difficult to arrange a meeting. You know, how many of us have struggled in numerous text messages and WhatsApp groups trying to find the right moment in history or in time to come to sit and have a meeting where everyone's schedule is, is at least somewhat open. Well, what about even our day? When's the right moment in the day to, you know, to have lunch, to have dinner? How about the right time to find, um, to visit the doctor, the dentist, or friends and family. When's even the right time? We need to find time to sleep. If Netflix has its way with you, that can be, that can be quite difficult. But those are the day-to-day -day things. What about the big things in life, the, the bigger occasions in life? When's the right time to get married? to have children, to change your career, write a will, 
you know? I mean, we're always looking for the right moment to find, to do the right thing, and it can be difficult. In way of introduction and extending my introduction, I just want to read something before I go to our text today and pray and all the rest of it. And said, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I love World War II history. And I want to start by this introduction of, of bringing us into World War II. And looking back to World War II, Hitler knew the right moment for him to invade Poland and reclaim the territories that they lost in World War I. I read an excerpt from someone writing on his biography, and I thought this was good, and this is him writing about when he knew the right moment to strike. He said, from his meeting with Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Britain at the time, Hitler had discovered that this man would do anything to avoid military conflict. Chamberlain was aware of the appalling destruction that would take place during a modern war. He also feared that a large-scale war in Western Europe would weaken the countries involved to the point where they would be vulnerable to a communist takeover, i.e. Russia. Hitler told Ulbrich Hasshofer, his fellow, this fellow Chamberlain shook with fear when I uttered the word war. Don't tell me he's dangerous, Hasshofer told his friend Fritz Hess, that Hitler now convinced that he can afford to do anything. Formerly, he believed that he must have the maximum armaments because of the warlike menaces of the powers striving to encircle us. But now he thinks that these powers will crawl on all fours before him. Hitler knew that he needed to capitalize on the horrors of World War I. Because he knew that these men would not go to war. And so this is what initiated his, his land grab both to the Eastern Front and to the Western Front. But how is this true of God and his plan of salvation? I mean, that's a, a, an example of a man looking to invade the world and obviously wreak the havoc that we now know as World War II. Could Jesus have come at any moment in time and have accomplished pretty much the same thing? Or... Is it true that even God must also pick the right moment to invade the world with the gospel? Is even God himself subject to the right moment in history? Well, if you turn with me to Galatians 4. I want to read... I want to back up, I want to deal with, uh, I've said Galatians 4, but I want to back up because I, we need to kind of get the train of thought here. And I want to read from verse 23 in Galatians 3. I won't comment on it, but I need, you need to kind of get the argument so that we can best understand Galatians 4, 1 to 7. And in particular, we're going to be focusing in on verse 4. 
So if you're there, I would like to read in the ESV, then I would like to pray, and then I would like to maybe unpack some of what I think this means for us um, and looking towards the Advent season. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to, to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this uh, December the 1st, dear Lord God, as we look forward to this, this run within December, dear Lord God. Uh, we are thankful that here we are gathered, you know, able to um, celebrate another Advent, Advent season, dear Lord Father, and look forward to the opportunities for us, Lord God, to be refreshed in the knowledge of why your Son came. And Lord, even look forward more so to be sharing that with other people and be able to uh, welcome people, as many who would listen, to say, here is an opportunity to have a real Christ-filled Christmas. So Lord, help us as we unpack this, this miracle of the moment there, Lord God, this point in history where you decided to send your son under the basis that you saw that the time was right. Lord, as we unpack that, may you unpack in our own hearts there, Lord Father, why this is so important for us to understand. Help me, dear Lord God, help us all as we, we listen and stand under your word, that your spirit may teach us and lead us in all truth. Have your way in us, I pray. Amen. Amen. So, looking at the first three verses before we come to our key text, I mean, what is he saying here? Well, he's talking about being heirs, and and if you see the run-up in the end of to the end of chapter three, there, it's all encompassing. Both Jews and Gentiles were in that place where they were under a system which was building them up to maturity so that even Judaism itself was not the final form in which salvation would, would, would finally settle. It was a guardian. And it was awaiting the new Adam. 
the new Adam that we hear about in Paul's other letter to the Romans in chapter 5, where in that sense, Abraham was the beginning of the Jewish race, but he was not the beginning of the new the new kingdom that will include all people. In other words, they could not, even the Jews themselves, could not become the people of God until they were born again. Again, John 2, to be born again. And this is what, obviously, Jesus reminds Nicodemus of. You need to be born again. You're a leader of Israel and you don't realize that you have not arrived even the Pharisees and the, the, the high priests, you had not arrived yet, you are still waiting for the perfection of Christ's salvation history to fully flourish. And this is it. So before this time, everyone, like Abraham, under faith, were waiting for the seed, the seed singular, that would be the blessing to all the nations. Jesus reminds the Jews, you know, about him being the seed in John 8, 56, where he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And that's the day, the day where the fulfillment of that prophecy to Abraham would come, where your seed, that future seed, will come and be a blessing to all the nations. And he rejoiced because he saw it in faith, as Hebrews 11 reminds us. He saw that kingdom finally being established. Not the exclusive Jewish kingdom that many thought that it would. So before Jesus, everyone lived under the law. That's what Galatians 3 and obviously the, the letter in a sense is, is, is wrestling with. Judaism was not going to be the final form of salvation for his people, as Paul's illustration of a young heir shows. That when the father determines that the maturity of the, their maturity, then they can inherit. So the Jews, like every other nation, were living like sons under a guardian, waiting for the right moment when the father will say, Now you can. Be mature. I see that you're a mature, and I'm going to give you that responsibility. In this case, that responsibility of being a son in his father's image, without going through the mechanics of the law. So we're supposed to see that illustration of a child doing all the things. You know, I don't know if you ever watched. Um, oh, good Lord, I've forgot, forgotten the name of the um, the comedian, but he used to do this sketch on Kevin. You know, and when Kevin was Harry Enfield, there you go. And, and Kevin basically always got into a strut when he was told to do literally anything. You know, Kevin, pick up your head. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Kevin, put your hand to your mouth and eat. <laughs> Come on, why is you know? And it kind of is that illustration of the, the young person who is basically resisting everything that he's been told to do. And basically you do it simply because you just fear the consequences, you're just going through the motions because you just want your parents to shut up. 
And in that regard, you're being obedient, but not from the heart. And that's the image we're supposed to see, I believe. That we were, as it were, just going through the mechanics of serving God. But the maturity was going to come when that law that they were obeying merely externally would come into their heart. And that heart will now obey because it now saw the reality of what it needed to do. It, it, it now took the responsibility and said, I now do this because I know it's right. And it's what I want to do. It's the internalizing of the law. Ezekiel speaks about it in Ezekiel 11, 19, to 20, you know, 19 and 20, and it says this, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them, and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them, that they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This is the same thing that's reflected in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8. The, the, the waiting for maturity. The waiting for God to finally say, I can put that responsibility. I've now taken the external law that you've so rigidly followed and I'm going to put it in your heart where you can now say, I can see the beauty of God's law. It's like Psalms 119, isn't it? I can see the beauty of your law and I can see that it's helpful to me. Like when we become parents, we suddenly realize the importance and the beauty of the law that our parents, they were wise and they were diligent, had placed upon us. And we, like the psalmist, now say, now I follow your law because it is beautiful to me. Because I see that's necessary for my children. But what about the elementary principles? What was this that they were under? And I believe that he is referring to the religious cultures, both pagan and Yahwehistic. Yahwehistic meaning that which was related to the Jews, as they related to God, which had served as a placeholder. Revelations of the truth of God. And I believe that this was also true of the pagan cultures. There was no way to create a new religion so to speak, from scratch. Demons can only take that which they had in front of them and twist it. So whether you were looking at Canaanite culture, whether you were looking at Roman culture or Greek culture, Egyptian culture, everything was a distortion of the truth, but there was a truth within it. There were truths that talked about the beginning, that Gods or gods created the universe. There was truth in it because many of them also spoke of a judgment day. And within the context of many pagan cultures, there was this belief of a person who would come, who was like God, who would come and save the people. And they worshipped these things with the elementary powers. In other words, the elementary is, is speaking about the elements, the things that we 
the, the earth wind, you know, the earth, the fire, metal, that all these things were used in a way to, as it were, adore God. And I think we see a lot of that, obviously, today within, obviously, in pagan cultures where they, they, you know, they still burn incenses as a sweet aroma to God. We also see that in high churches as well, the burning of incenses in the Anglican and Catholic churches. Where that the elementary powers made us feel more holy. That when we touched the altar of God, made of metal or made of wood, we felt that we were closer to God. So all these things that we were touching upon were, were making us feel like I'm more sanctified because I've touched that today, or I smelt that today, or I sang that today. And so all of these cultures had these ideas woven into it. And they were conscious. Never, you know, where Jesus became the, the fulfillment of all of these ideals. No matter what country, whatever culture you're looking at, whatever religious form you're looking at, whatever pagan culture you're looking at, whatever you looked at, even down to Judaism, Jesus became the fulfillment of all these things. For the Jews who revered power, Jesus became the power of God. Not the power they were expected. Not the power that would come and, and remove the Romans. A king like David. But Jesus was the power of God, fulfilled. For the Greeks, to name but one other culture, who revered wisdom, Jesus was the wisdom of God. He was the wisdom of God on the basis that he knew all things. But again, when you look at the cross, for both the wisdom and for the power, both to the Jews and to the Greeks, Jesus was a stumbling block because a, 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 a mighty king, a powerful king dying for you was not power. For the Greeks, dying rather than... You dying in place of your enemies is not the way that you win a battle. So therefore, he was not wisdom in their traditional sense. But this was also highlighting the fact that even though they knew that their vision of power and of wisdom or whatever else that they may, any other culture may admire that what they really needed lay beyond them, but they didn't know how to grasp it. And so Jesus coming down at that moment in time was there to reveal to them, this is how you go beyond 
what the elemental powers that you've been trying to strive for cannot reach. For all the instances you're burning, for all the lambs and goats and cows that you've slaughtered, I'm the fulfillment of that. This is the end of all of those things. The elementary powers. So there was, as we could say in the cliche, a God-filled hole in every single culture, in every single person. A void that they couldn't overcome. So how were they going to reach that? But how would we now realize, how would humanity as a whole even realize the person and the work of God and the fulfillment that he actually accomplished as their own religious ideals? How would they come to realize that? Actually, he is the fulfillment of everything I desired. Because of the sin nature in us all, that does not want to be mature but dependent on twisted form, on the twisted form of a schoolmaster. In other words, a schoolmaster is a good thing. Paul calls the law good, but we twist that law, that schoolmaster. The same way that we can twist our own teachers and see them as negative persons, people who are there to make us do certain things and, and that are against our will. And so we twist that and say, well, he can only be the king that I want him to be. He can only be a king like David. He can only be a god like Athena. Must have Greek wisdom, not his own spiritual wisdom. Then we come to this verse, our key verse. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. So the question remains, why wait 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus for the world to be at a place of maturity? It's a long period of time for us as humans, isn't it? 2,000 years almost from, from Abraham to Jesus Christ. And this is my own theory. But it's one that I've, I've, I've as I've looked at it and, and weighed it I, as one who wants the Bible to speak to me, not just this particular place in the Bible, but someone who has a grasp of what the Bible has been trying to say for a, for, from, from Genesis all the way through to Revelations, I believe that that maturity lies all the way back in Genesis 10, in the leagues of nations. When you look at the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. 
you get a list of all the different cultures that were known at that time that these people were descended from. And I believe that the Lord himself had waited to every single one of those sons of Noah had become to a place of maturity, civilization, where they had become economic powers, where they had become military powers, where they became academic powers, when they had become religious powers and their religious view dominated the world. And all of them were trying to tr create. If you look all the way back to Nimrod and the, the establishing of, of Assyria or, or even Babylon and the Tower of Babel, everyone was trying to create the eternal culture, the eternal kingdom. Even Hitler himself was trying to create the eternal kingdom, the Third Reich, the 1,000-year rule. Do you know that when you look at the symbolisms that he used to carry around, he used to carry like symbolisms and emblems of the Roman Empire, the Babylon Empire. They were all trying to find the eternal empire, the kingdom of God. The kingdom in which God will shine down on and will reign eternally. But every single one of those kingdoms failed. And this is where I connect Genesis 10 to Daniel 2. The image that was there before the, the king of Babylon at the time. And he saw kingdoms coming until the kingdom of God was able to come and establish and become that eternal kingdom. You see the fading qualities of the metals from gold all the way down to iron. Stronger, but yet, yet less valuable. The moment in time, the moment in history that Jesus came was at the point where every single culture had come. And every single kingdom that Daniel prophesied would come had now arrived. And Jesus comes at that right moment in time and says, here is the eternal kingdom. Where is Egypt? Where is Assyria? Where is Babylon? Where is Persia? Where is Greece? And they were in the midst of Rome. Have they brought you the eternal kingdom? The kingdom of justice? The kingdom of peace? The kingdom that you were seeking for? They had all failed. And at that moment in history, Jesus comes. He comes like that crushing rock into the life of, thou, of our history. And he says, here's the kingdom. I think that he chose that moment because it fulfilled all that we see in Scripture before that. Let those kingdoms come, let them try, and I will show you how to build a kingdom, an eternal one. 
with God at the center. And because of this, he is now made us sons. And this is what the verse 6 says. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Note that the, the way that God chooses to relate to us is personal, not formal. We are creatures before a creator, yes. Yet we cannot deny that God's choice to relate to us on the intimate level is also there too. I, I, I listened to a fantastic sermon on the bags or the bags of gold, as, as Carson, D.A. Carson put it last night. And, and Matthew 25, 23 says this. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, one of the things he highlighted in, his, in that particular exposition of this particular passage is that they were slaves, and they're now, because of their faithfulness in their service, are now invited to join in with the Father. Come and be a part of the kingdom. A servant has been told they can come into the house and enjoy the household of God. The servant enjoys sonship. What a beautiful gift. But however, we must be wary of those who try to resolve the tension and say we can either be one or the other, but we can't be both. There are some people who say, well, you know, I don't know about all this kind of, you know, being like the sun and being like God, you know. And again, you know, for those of the more Islamic persuasion, that's what they would do. And then you've got the other extreme on the, on the, I guess you would say, the prosperity gospel where we are the king's kids and we're the sons and, and therefore we have all the reign of the house. And we can do as we please because we are sons. The reality is that I think that we would do well to retain the tension that we are privileged slaves who are called to be sons. And when we keep that creature-creature distinction and we keep the promise that we are genuinely called and invited to be sons, that we keep both of those as true. Romans 5, 6 says this, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I thought that was important to include. Because now this is where it becomes personal, not just looking at the grand stage of world history, but looking at what does that look like for us. Note from this passage that the initiative is with God. God takes the initiative to enter our life. Contrary to the Enlightenment, and that whole idea that we're, the human race is now mature and no longer needs the revelation of God and that we can now stand on our own two feet and also contra black enlightenment for that, for that matter as well, that we actually now 
have to live by revelation. We are actually helpless. And we need God's involvement. We need God to tell us right from wrong. We still need revelation. We needed God's intervention. We need him to help us. So how do we apply this? We've just looked at the grand canvas of world history. Now let us bring this into the smaller history of our own lives. At the right moment, when we had become fully established in our own way, in our own autonomy, we experienced the frustration of not living to our own expectations. For all of you who are saved today and understand what I'm talking about, there was a point where our world crumbled. There's a point where, like the Babylonian Empire, your world were overrun and in came the Persians and took everything that you have. And just like that, there was a point where, and us building our little kingdoms, whether that be our careers, whether that be our families, there's a point where it crumbled. And in came the invaders. And then the Lord had an opening. And says, do you want to join my kingdom? Would you like to grow in me? Christ entered our life then. So what was also true of the grand scale of history of when Christ came into the world is also true of our own experiences of a life where our world crumbled and the Christ entered in. What about for you who are not saved today? Are you at the point in life where your expectations have not been fulfilled? Has your world crumbled? Are the walls that hold out the enemy collapsed where you are now realizing that I am, I am defenseless. Like King Nebuchadnezzar's image is crumbled. The kingdoms of this world have failed and in comes the kingdom of God. And it's, will you join me? Will you allow me to enter in? Because now is the right moment in the history of your life and not just the history of the world, this comes down to us. And there is a point in our history where has God entered into you? And entered into you in such a way that you can be built up in an eternal kingdom. A kingdom that will last. Maybe this Christmas be the right moment for you to have a true Christ-filled Christmas. The first one. This is the moment. And this is the miracle of that moment. Is this the right time for you? And for those of us who have been saved, 
Are we not glad for that moment? Should not every day that comes after that be a celebration of that? Should not Christmas be almost like a, an arousing of Lord? I, I thank the Lord that you came. I thank the Lord that he came into history. But not just to the history of the world, but into the history of my own life. What a great way to celebrate this year. Amen. Let's pray as the, the team comes up. Father, we're thankful this, this, at this point, dear Lord God, where we can look at the moment. Look at a little, in a little detail, dear Lord Father, of, at the point where you came in. A point where, Lord God, where you had access to all the different cultures of the world, all the different sons of Noah, dear Lord Father, and you came in and you, and you were able to speak into all these different cultures. Not just because of the infrastructure, but because they had been established, Lord, and they had known the failure that they had become. If they were honest with themselves, and even the Romans at that time would have been able to look at the failure that they had actually become. And Lord, when we look at our own lives as well, look at how we have failed. We built our kingdoms. They crumbled. The gospel came. You entered in. Lord, help us to appreciate what that moment meant for us, O Lord. Help us to appreciate what it means to be able to say, Abba, Father. Rebels and enemies of your kingdom who have been invited not to just participate as slaves, but to actually come and enjoy the kingdom. Lord, may our Christmas be something that really actually celebrates the entering of you, not just into history, but into our lives. May it be a glorious thing for us, dear Lord Father. May we share that news with joy over this season, dear Lord God, and even beyond. And we thank you, that Lord God, that it came, in the, it came through the cross as well, not just through the birth, but through the, your death. Without your death, it would not have been possible that we could enter in there, Lord Father. But we are thankful, Father, because you came. We are saved. And saved and made sons, Lord. So thank you for this opportunity, dear Lord, to, to, to reflect on these truths. Help us to run with it um, and be fueled by it, dear Lord Father, because your gospel is so good. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.